0: We are privileged again this afternoon to be able to come together in the name of the great God of heaven, having been blessed already earlier today with that opportunity, and as we come together this evening to sing praises of hymns and adoration to God, to engage in prayer, to engage in those other activities and worship of which we spoke and addressed this morning. What a wonderful occasion, and may we each be encouraged by it and look forward to a week in service to our wonderful Father in heaven. As you may well remember from this morning, a few computer difficulties perhaps made it such that we were unable to make use of the projection mechanism, the screen, this morning. However, Christy allowed me to borrow her computer for the night, and so uh, we're going to see if we can project it the correct way this evening, and perhaps we can get, uh, get a computer fixed in, in, the, in the relatively near future. As you may have noticed in the bulletin, we made note that the title of the lesson this evening would be a timeline of the New Testament, And one of the things to appreciate about a timeline is it merely helps us or gives us an aid whereby we can appreciate when various things took place. As we open the pages of the New Testament, we notice a large number of various names, be it of people or cities, things, rivers, places. But quite often we notice there aren't dates attached to the times of when those events took place. I thought it might be beneficial for each of us this evening to begin to look at some of those dates that we can piece together and attach to some of the events of the New Testament. That leads me to introduce our lesson in the following ways. As we make discussions about the Bible, specifically the New Testament, quite often, especially from time to time, we are encouraged to ponder the seriousness of the times and dates attached to those events. In fact, there are those who may be interested in the Word of God, perhaps have done some study of it, but they are somewhat of the disposition that the Bible was written so long ago. Really, is it a trustworthy document? Is it something that we can place confidence in? For after all, it's so old. Quite often we live in an age when we appreciate what's new. We look for what's new and improved, And we tend to have less respect for and confidence in that which is at least of reasonable age. That's a dangerous mindset if we apply it in religion, isn't it? For the scriptures we understand were not written in the last hundred years. In fact, they were written long, long ago. But that does not in the slightest detract from the character of their trustworthiness, the character of the fact that they are fullness in terms of assurance and fullness in terms of confidence. That leads me to make the following set of statements. It is a brilliant stroke of genius in the divine realm that God has chosen to deliver His Word as a series of historical documents. That is to say, the Bible makes mention of real people who existed, who lived in real cities, in real countries on this earth. Notice, God didn't choose to deliver it like Aesop's fables, something that someone made up. He chose real people through the actual events of their lives, and yet through them transformed all of history by the revelation of His Word. As we've noticed in our Sunday morning Bible class, there was a man named Abraham who literally left Ur of the Chaldees, and as he journeyed toward that land of Palestine, he came to father a child even in his old age. And to that child whose name would be Isaac, we remember the whole human, human family has been blessed. In fact, in Genesis 22:18, 18, we read, "...in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed." And God spoke those words to Abraham. That is but one example of a many, many others that might be listed. But doesn't that impress upon our minds the reality of the historical nature of, this, of the Holy Scriptures? Now, as we begin to think about when these events took place and the setting of how they took place. Tonight, our focus will, of course, be on the New Testament and the timeline that that associates to it. One of the last things that I've chosen to write upon that screen for your reference is the thought that as we look at the dates about which we shall turn our attention tonight, many of them are rather certain, and there's really only a very small possibility of uncertainty in in many of them. So certainly, let's not take all of them as divinely given, if you will, but rather by piecing together what we can from the New Testament, these events seem to be rather certain in many, many ways. The First thing to consider is where might we begin to date the things of the New Testament? It would be fair to say that the Old Testament prepares us entirely for the coming of the New Testament. We so easily remember that through those 39 books of the Old Testament, we're reminded of how the promise was of the fact that one was coming. This one who would be the blessing toward all humanity, the Messiah, the one anointed, referenced in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But as the Old Testament closed, that one had not yet come. And we with ease turn from the closing chapter of Malachi to the opening chapter of Matthew and almost the first word in the New Testament, the generations of Jesus Christ. The one of whom we were looking is now about to come. As we turn then to the New Testament, the following dates become apparent. They become something of which we might in fact place in our memory. According to our calendar today, Jesus was born in 4 B.C., If we were to use that then as a recognition of the dates to follow, we remember the greatness of the event of that year. Herod was on the throne at the time. The ruling power was none other than Rome. In fact, Rome had been spoken of as the fourth of the worldwide kingdoms in the book of Daniel. The Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek had all given sway. The Roman Empire was now the ruling authority. And in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we even find a record of some of the ruling Roman kings at the time. It would be fair to notice, as we begin this listing then in 4 BC, we notice powerfully and somewhat amazingly the Holy Spirit has chosen to give us relatively little specific details about the early life of Jesus. We remember in Luke chapter 2, we have a significant record of his birth. However, At that point, we race almost immediately to the time when he was 12, when he went to keep the Passover with his parents, and they inadvertently left him behind on their return home. At that point, though, we know nothing else about Jesus until he was age 30. A vast span of years where we might wish to know more, but God has not revealed it. The next thing for us is the year 26 AD. On that occasion... We read in Luke 3, verse 23, that Jesus began His public ministry in that year. Interesting, isn't it, that that accords perfectly with what we remember from Old Testament prophecy. It was not happenstance. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, had been given prophecy from God Himself that there would be 70 weeks involved. And in the prophecy of 70 weeks... That corresponds to 70 weeks times, of course, seven days per week is 490 days. In the prophetic consideration, according to Ezekiel, each day would represent a year. Thus, 490 years were under consideration, but it would be considered in the following way. Seven years, or seven weeks first, would be 49 years. That's how long it took to rebuild Jerusalem. Then 62 weeks would come next. That would take us, upon counting, to precisely 26 A.D. That's the very year our Savior began his public ministry. The very year when, upon his baptism, he began to preach the glorious goodness of the gospel of Christ. In fact, we begin to notice throughout the gospel accounts Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that accounts of where the Savior preached and how often he preached. Isn't it amazing? That in fact, the message was simply this. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew four seventeen. Jesus even himself stated that he must go and preach the good news of the gospel, for men are in dire need of hearing it. And the gospel accounts reveal to us that that's precisely what our Savior did. His preaching ministry only lasted about three and a half years. At that point, as we come to the closing part of those gospel accounts, That brings us to the year 30 A.D. On that occasion, our Savior was put to death. We remember that the Jewish hierarchy had turned against him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and their leadership had been unaccepting of him, though the common people heard him gladly, Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and following. It is the case, though, that the leadership were unwilling to be challenged, and ultimately they put Jesus to death the very Son of God, the one who had come to love them and save them, and the one whose blood would cleanse them. And yet they, with a deaf ear to His message and a strong antagonism to Him, put this one to death. As the gospel accounts race to their conclusion, we remember that our Savior, however, died triumphantly because not only was He crucified, but on that first day He rose triumphantly. The grave could not hold Him, but that which their leaders had hoped to have put aside, nonetheless rose to greatness through his resurrection. As the gospel accounts close, might we notice that several things might be stated very quickly. We made note of the fact that Jesus rose again. That takes us immediately to the book of Acts. For we notice that for some 40 days after his resurrection, he appeared to his disciples, convincing them of his resurrection Ten days later, the church was established. Thus, the church began 51 days after Jesus was nailed to that old rugged cross at Calvary. But oh, what things transpired in those 51 days. On that first day of the week when the church began, triumphantly those apostles were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and Peter and the others began to preach in languages they hadn't learned, and that large crowd that was there gathered. They heard the gospel proclaimed in its for the first time. About 3,000 gladly received it and were baptized, verse 41 of Acts chapter 2, the church now in existence. That takes us to notice that in verse, in this passage that we've just discussed, Acts chapter 2, we've now come to 30 AD. What will happen next? What about the years that followed? What would befall the church? That takes us quickly to the next series of events in the book of Acts. I might quickly mention that the book of Acts is the single book of New Testament history. It will not be too shocking that much of the next dates will in fact relate directly to the book of Acts. Following the year 30 AD, we come to 32 AD, a short span of two years later. It would appear that the events of Acts chapter 9 take place during this year. This was that interesting occasion when on the road to Damascus, this gentleman named Saul sees a bright light about him and the Lord Jesus Christ talks to him. This one who was such a devout Pharisee, who had been such a devout defender of the Judaism religion, now falls on his face, falls on his knees and cries, Lord, what will you have me to do? He was told to go into Damascus, and there he'd be told what he must do. Ananias came to him by direction from heaven, and on that occasion he was told to be baptized. Saul was, and in verse 20 of that chapter, he began to preach. This one would become the greatest defender the first century church would ever have from that point forward. Notice it is that took place in Acts chapter 9. Those intervening chapters, chapters 3 up through 8, had told us of the explosive growth of the church. How that in regions, in some cases, not terribly near Jerusalem, the church had grown. Notice next in 35 A.D., we learn from Galatians 1.18 that this man named Saul now makes his first visit to Jerusalem as a Christian. On that occasion, he meets the apostles, namely Peter and the others. And at that point, he is commissioned by them to proceed onward in his preaching ministry. Nextly, we arrive at 41 A.D. We are now only 11 years after the events where the church was established is in, 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 recorded in Acts chapter 2. In this year, 41 A.D., we have the events of Acts chapter 10, the conversion of Cornelius, the first Gentile convert to Christ. Might we notice that a full decade, perhaps a bit more, has elapsed since the time of the establishment of the church. During that time, the Jews were welcomed. Peter and the others preached their message to them. Where were the Gentiles? It had been forecast and foretold in the Old Testament that they would be welcomed in. Hosea chapters 1 as well as chapter 2. Now the very message of God came to them. And God in fact again in a marvelous stroke of brilliance directly told Peter what I have called, letting you not call uncommon. In fact when he told Peter by way of that vision and to rise Peter, kill and eat. Peter at first refused. However, he quickly learned the lesson And in the events that followed, an angel from heaven, even the Holy Spirit himself spoke to Paul, or rather to to Peter, encouraging him to understand that he was to go to the household of Cornelius and there to preach unto him the glad tidings and the good message to be found. Notice how much has happened in the ten years since the establishment of the church. Paul continues onward in that ministry. In the year 46 A.D., You'll notice I make listing that that's when the first missionary journey began. We are now some 16 years past the establishment of the church, but it was time for its borders to extend. It was time for men everywhere to hear the good tidings, the glad news of the gospel. Notice that in Acts chapter 13, the commissioning was set forth to Paul and Barnabas that they were to go, and the Holy Spirit, in fact, was to be their guide. Not only did that take place, we notice in the course of those events, Paul and Barnabas went and proceeded to preach the gospel in new areas and to establish congregations in the regions of Asia Minor as well as on that island of Cre- on the island of Cyprus. I've listed somewhat quickly some of the regions through which Paul and Barnabas traveled as we can see the general movement of the gospel toward regions of the west. Notice that as they left from Antioch, they left the seaport town of Seleucia, from there to the island of Cyprus, where the two major cities were, Salamis and Paphos, from there to the mainland, in which through Perga, as well as through the other areas that would be related to Iconium and Antioch of Pisidia, to Derby and Lystra, and then they backtracked through some of those same cities, departing from Italia and finally back to Antioch. As all of that took place it would be fair to notice the following map. As you can see, the gospel was now being spread in the direction that would have been eastward from Jerusalem, or westward from Jerusalem. The fair thing to notice that that region today is what would be in south-central Turkey. Interesting to notice the general movement, which now we are on less than two decades after the very establishment of the church. Some of the things to notice about that are, of course, the success that was to be had on that missionary journey. Congregations were established. Elders were appointed in those churches, Acts 14, 23. As Paul came back through that area, he found congregations that were doing well. Congregations that were doing as they had been appointed and as the success would lead them to see. Let's march forward again in time and come to the year 49 A.D., Here we come to Acts chapter 15. That very interesting and powerful Jerusalem conference took place. In that chapter, we remember that in fact Paul had been questioned. There was the teaching on the part of some that in order for these Gentiles to become Christians, they first must be circumcised. Paul and Barnabas, of course, did not agree to that teaching they decided to go and to have a conference in Jerusalem with those apostles and others. And on that occasion, James was the primary spokesman. Notice as that took place in 49 AD, some 19 years after the church's establishment, and it settled once and for all this matter of, is circumcision a part of what God requests and demands of Gentiles? And the answer was no. In fact, just a short time later, we see the second missionary journey begin, where Paul proceeds again to go to other areas and share with them the glorious goodness of the gospel. It would be a different area than what he had first been through on the first journey. In fact, I've listed again some of the principal features of that second missionary journey. It's detailed for us, beginning near the close of Acts 15 on into Acts 18. Paul and Silas were the principal ones Along the way, Timothy and Luke would also join them. Throughout that missionary journey, notice some of the cities and some of the areas, if you would. First, they made a rather quick trip through Asia Minor. Then, on into Europe. And for the first time, we have the gospel preached in, in the continent of Europe. It is a fascinating thing to behold. When we reach Acts, the 16th chapter, on that occasion, the Macedonian call comes to Paul where, in fact, he sees a man who says, Come over into Macedonia and help us. At once, Paul left the coast of Asia Minor and proceeded to that city of Philippi. There, where he encountered first that young girl, and out of her he cast a spear of divination. Following that, the Philippian jailer and his conversion, and what a wonderful Philippian church would come to be established from those events in that city of Philippi. That's only the first of many other cities that Paul would visit on the continent of Europe. I've listed them in order for your consideration. Not only Philippi, but there was Thessalonica and then Berea. And following Berea, we remember that Athens and Corinth and Ephesus and Jerusalem and finally back back to Antioch. In parentheses this time, I've listed the duration of Paul's stay in some of those cities. You might notice the one-and-a-half-year visit at Corinth, the two-year stay at Ephesus. That'll be significant for us to note the following. It was while Paul was staying in Corinth that, in fact, he wrote the first two books that he would write in the New Testament, the books of First and Second Thessalonians. As we begin to piece those books together with the other histories, we now come to an appreciation of the background for those books of First and Second Thessalonians they fit naturally into the closing part of Paul's second missionary journey. Notice also this map that tries to highlight some of the features of that second missionary journey. You'll notice that the line at least is fairly easy to see. As Paul leaves the given regions, Antioch is just off the screen here, and Paul proceeds quickly through Asia Minor. Then here from this area, he quickly moves to Philippi, Thessalonica, and onto these other regions, ultimately culminating in Corinth and Athens, both of the cities here on, the, on this particular region. All the while, notice, we still are less than 25 years from the day of the church's establishment. But look how far it had grown. Look how expansive it had reached into the, in the direction westward. If we make note of that point, might we continue our tram line just a little bit further? In so doing, that brings us to the following scene, the year 56 AD. At this point, we have the third missionary journey as it commenced. We remember how successful the first two had been, and the only language that Paul uses as he contemplates the third is, let us go again and see how our brethren do that we have seen before. He was interested in how they were doing. We might remember that was long before there was a telephone that you could use to call them, long before there was a computer you could use to visit them by way of internet, long before there was, in fact, any other U.S. Postal Service. Paul wished to go visit them in person. As he did that, that's what we recognize as the third missionary journey. Timothy was his companion, and as they proceeded again to visit the regions that were toward the west, some of the same cities that they had been through before, he would visit yet again. We are told in the scriptures this time, Acts chapters 18 through 21, that Ephesus was primarily the main one on this occasion. But after that, there was also Macedonia, Corinth, Troas, Assos, Matalene, followed by the very quick visits to Samos, Miletus, and then back to Jerusalem. All the while, those visits took place. Paul's interest never veered from the gospel. Establishing congregations, revisiting those that had formerly been established to encourage and strengthen them, to in fact strive to solidify them so that false doctrine could not be started easily. There were cities where that was easier than others. There were times that Paul met great difficulty. All the while, though, he was never moved aside from his challenge, never moved aside from his charge. Perhaps it's of interest to note yet again that some of the books of the New Testament were written while Paul was involved in this third missionary journey. I have again listed them for you. While he was at Ephesus, he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. When we read that book of 1 Corinthians, it historically fits so naturally into the very character of the third missionary journey. Not only that one, but notice that the second Corinthian letter was written while Paul was stationed in Macedonia. Furthermore, the book of Galatians as well as Romans were both written while he was in Corinth. All of that reminds us that the backdrop for those books was historically placed at exactly these points on his third missionary journey. From time to time, comments are made in the scriptures that directly tie it to events in history. During our reading this evening, it was read from 1 Thessalonians 3 verses 1 and 2. I might ask you to recall that in that text, Paul made mention of the city of Athens. Why might that have been useful? Because on that second missionary journey, he had just come from Athens. And hence, that makes perfect sense as we contemplate its significance. Interesting that when we study Corinthians, he makes reference to the events of Ephesus. Well, now we can see why that was true. He had just come from Ephesus, and in fact, it had been a very difficult stay for him. And as he came to Corinth, that weighed heavily upon his mind. It was something that troubled him and bothered him. I might mention also that as we think about those books, it does remind us of one other feature. As you can see from the books that are listed, the books that are in our New Testament are not placed in chronological order. Notice that Romans as well as Corinthians and the others there were written after the books of Thessalonians. Thus, as we read the New Testament books, let's be reminded that they are not given to us and placed in our Bibles in chronological order. They're placed rather in a different order. Notice also that that order corresponds really to the things that tie to the missionary journeys of Paul. Let's look further at our timeline. We next arrive at 60 A.D., As we come to this given point, we are now only 30 years following the time of Jesus' crucifixion and the time of the establishment of the Lord's Church. The Apostle Paul is still a central figure in the book of Acts. This brings us to chapter 21 of that book and really will carry us through the closing of the book of Acts. Paul is arrested on a false charge in Acts 21. In the chapters that follow that arrest, we remember that Paul stands trial before any number of individuals, such as Felix, Festus, the Sanhedrin council, Agrippa, and others. And each time, Paul very nobly defends himself. And not only that, he ultimately appeals unto Caesar, for he is unable to get justice any other way. That leads us to see that there comes a time that he undertakes a voyage to Rome. As a prisoner, I might add, it is not a pleasure trip. As he makes that voyage to Rome, he ultimately will stand before Caesar But at that, the drop on the book of Acts closes. For two long years, we're told in Acts 28, Paul is under house arrest. That is to say, he has a degree of freedom, but nonetheless is a prisoner awaiting his trial before the Roman Caesar. That two-year period is a rather significant one for the following reasons. Paul continued his efforts during that time. Individuals had the liberty to come to him, and he could preach to them. As they came... He could in fact share letters with them and get them to transport letters to other places. During that time, Paul wrote four rather powerful books of the New Testament. These are sometimes called his prison epistles. It is during that two-year period that he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Isn't it also easy to see that it was likely during that time that he was able to convert Onesimus to the faith? that very one who in fact was the slave of Philemon, and it is with that letter we call Philemon, he sent that slave back to none other than than Philemon himself. The four prison epistles. It's also during that period of time when, of course, the Philippian letter was written, and might we at least mention in passing, the Philippian letter is a masterpiece of joy. It is a masterpiece of positive thinking, a masterpiece of victory in Christ, and yet Paul was a prisoner when he wrote it. Doesn't that speak volumes about the gracious goodness that God can give to you and me? Even while in a Roman prison, Paul could write, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, Philippians 4 verse 4. It's in that same place that Paul could make the great statement, that for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain, Philippians 1 verses 20 and 21. These things help us see that the historical aspects of these books can give us a better feeling for the wonderful messages that they contain. I've listed that statement about Paul. It's at this point that it would appear the first of the gospel accounts was written in the book of Matthew. In fact, Matthew wrote that book. It appears from the information contained in it to be dated about 60 AD, about 30 years following the time of Jesus' crucifixion. As the timeline goes onward, might we notice that we can at least highlight that voyage to Rome. As you can see, the gospel moving ever greater in the degree westward. The first and second missionary journeys had involved these regions. The third one had taken them to regions in here. Now, all the way to the capital city of the ancient world, Rome, the gospel had now come. As we see the triumphant beauty and victory of the gospel... Perhaps Paul's statements in the Corinthian letter ring ever so true. We are always led in triumph in Christ, 2 Corinthians 2.14, and we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, Romans 8, verses 35-39. These statements lead us to see that we should continue on with our timeline. What befell the great apostle next? In 63 A.D., we noticed that Paul's two-year house arrest came to a conclusion, and Paul was released on that occasion. Upon being released, he had the freedom again to engage in the activities that would push the boundaries of the church and the gospel. Though the scriptures are, for the most part, silent, we do have some indirect evidences that lead us to, to conclude. Paul's efforts during these next times were in Asia Minor, Macedonia, Spain, and even the island of Crete. Now, as we make special consideration of Spain, notice that Spain is far off on our map to the direction would be to your left. That was quite a bit even westward of even Rome. To think about that, the gospel had gone so far in Europe, and it had done so in a period of about 30 years or a little bit more. Some of the other features that we might note during this time, isn't it fair to say that Paul's statement in Colossians 1.23 seems so amazing. By the time Paul was able to write that, he said that every creature under heaven had been exposed to the gospel. How far it had gone as the apostles and his individual Christians had taken their duty and their obligation to carry forth to others and to share the message. The thing to be noted also is some more books were written during this decade of that first century. During that decade, about the year 63. Paul wrote the books of 1 Timothy and Titus. We notice in those books the very tender and powerful words of warning and wisdom that Paul delivered to his young sons in the faith. Timothy on the one hand, Titus on the other. Timothy, you see, was stationed in Ephesus, a place where there was a thriving congregation, where there were elders who could nurture and guide this young man. However, Titus was stationed on the island of Crete. From what the evidence of that book suggests... His difficulty was far greater than that of Timothy. You see, he needed to be bold and strong, whereas Timothy was far younger and appears to be rather timid and meek. Either way, Paul had a place where work could be done powerfully for each. The fact is, as we look at some other books, we notice that it was also during this very time that Luke wrote both the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Isn't it interesting to remember that the missionary journeys having been finished, this was exactly the time when Luke could have made discussion with Paul and put into writing the features and affairs of those books. In addition, it was at this time that Peter wrote the two epistles that bear his name. It's at this time, of course, that James wrote the book that bears his name and Mark wrote the book that bears his name. One last comment about the book of Hebrews It also was written at about this same time. I notice, or I put the word perhaps in that very, very carefully. The book of Hebrews is an anonymous book. We do not know for certain who wrote it. There are many who are of the position that Paul did, and if so, certainly I put the word perhaps there, but whoever wrote it, it was about this time, the middle part of that seventh decade of the first century. In the year 68 A.D., that great apostle was arrested for the last time. On this occasion, as Paul was arrested again due to the difficulties of the Jewish individuals and those who were unwilling to stand his teaching any longer, this time when Paul stood trial, that would be the end of his life, his head was struck from his body and that great apostle was laid to rest in the city of Rome. The great man Paul then had come to the end of his life in that year, 68 A.D., however, shortly before his death, he wrote the very last book that he would ever write, the book of Second Timothy. And in that very book, he nonetheless was able to state the victory that not only was his, but all who loved the appearing of the Savior. He said, For henceforth that there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all of them also, that love is appearing. With that, we come to one of the great Statements then about the closing of arguably the greatest life of any of the apostles. For this one who had gone so far to preach the truth, who had planted churches all over the Roman Empire. At this point, things take a rather dramatic turn. In the year 70 AD, the Roman armies roll into Jerusalem and raise it to the ground. Jerusalem is left in heaps. The temple was destroyed. Might we remember Jesus had prophesied that would happen. In Matthew 24, when he was asked by those who were watching the greatness of those stones, remember, he said, I'm telling you, there's coming a day when not one stone will be left on another. And he said, it'll happen in this generation. Forty years later, from the time the Lord made that statement, the Roman armies, led by the general whose name was Titus, under the great leader whose name was Vespasian, utterly destroyed Jerusalem. On that occasion, the Jewish religion, as it was known at that time, came to an end. The Sadducees were no more. In that given year, we might notice that very little is said thereafter. We've already made mention of virtually all the books of the New Testament were written by that time. The only ones left were the ones penned by the Apostle John. In the year 90 AD, we have the fact that John penned the gospel account that bears his name, as well as the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Finally, in 96 A.D., shortly before his own death, John wrote the closing book in all of God's Bible, the book of Revelation. As we can see, all of these events thus took place within the confines of a fairly short period of time. It reminds us of the scene of Acts 17, verse 6, when it says, "...these that have turned the world upside down have come here also." Never has there been, in such a short span of time, a revolution that literally turned the world upside down." And yet, with the preaching of the gospel, it had happened. We today are still enjoying the benefits of that perpetual nature of the kingdom of God, the glorious beauties of this Bible, which is still as thriving and is as active today as it was then. Why might that be? The books of Homer and and others like that, though they're still considered classics, few of us know very much about them, but yet this book is treasured by millions. Read daily by millions. Studied and looked into as the wonderful Word of God by millions. Is it not true? In Hebrews 4.12, it still is described in these words. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You see, the Bible is ever living and active. Paul, in fact, affirmed that, did he not, in First Corinthians 3? As he said, we do not read a dead letter, but it's a living letter, an open and living epistle that transforms the very character of those who allow their lives to be touched by. This timeline has basically been a historical survey of some of the major things in time of the New Testament. It does lead us to the following conclusion statements to our lesson this evening. God in his infinite wisdom chose to deliver his word in a historical way. Again, it was not myth. It was not fables. It was real people who lived really in a certain place upon earth. And the Word of God transformed their life, and the records are those which still are able to touch and impact ours today. As we study, then, the books of the New Testament, maybe may we be reminded of the historical character and to best understand those books, to spend a few moments and learn a bit of the history that set the stage for those books. For example, when we study 1 and 2 Thessalonians, we would do well to revisit Acts chapter 17 where Paul came to Thessalonica and there planted a church for the whole backdrop of those two books will be found in that chapter. When we study the Corinthian letters, we would do well to revisit Acts 18 and learn again when the gospel first came to Corinth and how that that set the stage for the problems and difficulties that the church in that city would experience. When we study the Ephesian letter, we would do well to reread Acts chapter 19 when the gospel first came to Ephesus and Paul planted a congregation in that marvelous and ancient city. This lesson this evening has reminded us yet again about how that God in His Word has statements like this. In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The gospel transformed the lives of those of the ancient first century era, and it can still transform lives today. Are you a member of the New Testament body of Christ? Are you a Christian? Do you proudly wear that name so that others can see Christ living in you? If you have not, May we understand that very same gospel of which we've spoken demands, by the words of Jesus, that we hear it, that we believe Jesus to be the Son of God, that we repent of our sins, that we confess His name in an oral fashion as the Son of God, and that we be immersed, baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If you've not done that, let tonight be the night. The baptismal waters are warm. Everything is prepared and ready. If you have become a Christian at some time in the past, but you haven't really lived faithfully and truly that calling, come back to that first love this evening. Understand that there's an audience of people excited about the thought of praying for you and with you, and that not only that, God, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the angels are also excitedly happy about the thought of welcoming you back to your first love. If we could be of assistance in either of these ways tonight, would you let that be known even now while together we stand and while we sing?